Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. So I'm going to just get right into our, uh, right into our message today. Uh, have you guys been enjoying our study through Ephesians thus far? Boy, it's rich. Good stuff, isn't it? So we're going to continue that study uh, this morning. Uh, Ephesians, welcome to the new you. That's our sermon title that we've been doing. Welcome to the new you. Jesus Christ has risen. He has ascended. You have put your faith and trust in him, right? Amen. And now he has sent you into the world. You were once darkness, but now, there's that phrase we keep seeing pop up throughout Ephesians, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This is an identity-setting study that we have to understand as Christians on a foundational level. This is a study that we have to, uh, uh, it really it's a mindset that Paul is trying to establish in us as believers to view ourselves as God views us now. You were once darkness, but now you are light. So let's take a look at our first graphic right off the bat, uh, our outline of Ephesians. We've, we're beginning chapter 4 today, so if you want to get ahead of the game and open your Bible up, let me hear those Bible pages flipping around out there. I love that sound. We're going to be starting in chapter 4. We're not going to get all the way through the chapter today, but we'll get pretty... We'll make some good ground in it, I think. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, which we completed last week, was talking all about our position, what we are in Christ now. Again, foundation setting, what he did and what that, what he did, what that makes us, okay? Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 is going to get into the uh, responsibilities that we now have in response to that. Paul balances in the letter to the Ephesians Doctrine with duty. We inherit the wealth by faith and faith alone, and we invest the wealth by works. I love, I love it being said that way. So let me say this, though, this morning for anybody watching online or anybody who's a visitor here this morning and just curious about what this Christianity thing is. If you are not a Christian, let me say this. God is not asking you to do the commandments in this letter, Okay. First, you must become a child of his through faith, and that's the only way that you do it, is by faith in Christ. You must become a member of his body. What follows in this epistle or letter from Paul is for those who have been redeemed and have heard the word of truth. You need to understand this. Dead men cannot walk no matter how insistently they are urged to walk. We have to understand that the dead man must, be, must first be made alive. And that's what Paul's been talking about through these first three chapters. Paul has told us that we were dead in trespasses to sin. The only thing that makes us alive, hear this now, the only thing that makes us alive is by trusting in, putting our faith in the finished and complete work of the cross and the empty tomb. That's it. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. 
Not faith plus works. Not faith plus be a good person now. Not faith plus uh, uh, do this ritual now at your denomination and become saved. No, it's faith in his work. He did all the work. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. So if you haven't done that, uh, or if you were raised perhaps in a legalistic, bad doctrine, teaching, church, or false religion, don't be confused as we study forward. These instructions are not meant to be interpreted as a means to atone for sins or a means to appease God somehow, okay? Let's look at this next graphic. As we move from chapters 1 through 3 into 4 through 6, there is a bridge here, and this is uh, uh, brought to us uh, by Warren Wearsby and his uh, uh, book on Ephesians. It, through the first three chapters, Paul talked about our wealth that we have, and now we're gonna talk, he's going to talk about the walk that we should have. Our wealth, in other words, we are called by grace, going to be mirrored by now walk worthy and in unity. You are raised from the dead, so now put off grave clothes and walk in purity. You are reconciled to Christ, so now walk in harmony. Christ's victory was over Satan. We read about that in chapter 3. So Paul is now telling us, so walk in that victory. Amen? This is going to be good. I think you're going to like it. Today, I got a treat for you guys. I'm going to be teaching from the old King James Version today. You ready? All right. You know, I always love, my favorite translation is the New King James Version. There's a lot of great different versions. I always love to read a version, though, that is based off the Textus Receptus Codex. For those who know what that is, you know what that is. In any case, we're going to go King James today because we're going to do a lot of word study. Paul really goes into some depth in this section of his letter, and we're going to take it apart in a lot of cases word by word. Are you ready? All right. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Right out of the gates, Paul says, therefore, okay? In other words, he's linking everything that passed. Remember, the letters are scrolls. They weren't, they weren't cut up into chapters and verses when he wrote his letter. It was a letter. So he's written all three, the first three chapters. He didn't write them as chapters. So he was writing all of this great instruction, foundation, identity, setting stuff to you. And now he comes back with the next sentence and he just says, therefore. So in other words, having said all of that... Having said all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, I, the prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner, again, he's identifying himself as a prisoner. He is actually a prisoner when he's writing this letter. He's in a Roman prison, okay? And yet he's saying, I am seated in the heavenlies. It's interesting, isn't it, that he can be seated in the heavenlies while seated in a prison as a witness for Jesus Christ. You are also seated in the heavenlies, though we still are in this life and we go through the struggles we do. And that's what Paul was trying to, trying to get accomplished and communicated to you. I, therefore, having said all that, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. What is a vocation? We know what a vocation is, right? 
What is the vo- now, as a Christian, though, what is a Christian's vocation? It's simply to be seated in the heavenlies while you're still here on earth. So he beseeches us to walk worthy. That word beseech there, uh, part of the reason I wanted to go King James is words like these. We just don't use them very much anymore, do we? But I love it being said this way because what that word beseech means, it's a, it's a better direct correlation and definition to the Greek, which in the Greek, Paul was saying, I earnestly beg you. This thing is the living word of God, agreed? When the Holy Spirit, through that mouthpiece of Paul, comes to us and says, listen, I'm begging you. I'm going to pay attention, Right? I'm gonna, anytime Paul uses that word, Peter uses that word in his letters, you got my attention. If you're begging me to pay attention to something, I'm begging you earnestly that you walk worthy of your new position in Christ that you are called to. The main idea through the first 16 verses of chapter four, you're gonna see is very important for us as the body of Christ for the church to get and to understand. It's about unity. Unity. What unifies us? Can we see this next graphic? What unifies us? Well, the Old Testament, God would say to his people, obey me and I will bless you. We've read the Old Testament a little bit, right? We understood the dyna- understand the dynamic that was there. Obey me and I will bless you. Now we have a new dynamic that Paul makes very clear. I have already blessed you is what God says now. I have already blessed you. Now in response to my love and grace, obey me. I can get behind that, can't you? That should be unifying. The world says, do something to become somebody, but the word of truth says, be somebody, and then you can do something. That's why this is so important that we get this study and we get it deep down. We get it here and we get it here because we need to first be who we were created to be. We need to see ourselves, how Jesus, how the Father sees us, or we'll never be able to do what he has planned for us to do and prepared for us to do. We won't have the confidence. We won't have the self-worth. We won't have the boldness. We've got to get this deep down. So unity. This is a very, very important message for you, 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 everybody. Henry Halley, Henry H. Halley, one of my favorite old Bible scholars, 100 years old Bible scholars, uh, said this. Can we see that? He said, the purpose of the body, the body of Christ, is to nurture each of its members into the perfect image of God. That's what we're here for, guys. That's why we need to be the be-, be what we were created to be. See ourselves how we- he wants us to see ourselves, how he sees us, so I can function fully in my calling and purpose. And a big part of that is to help you do you, as they say, right? So as we move forward into verse 2, Paul is going to cover what Bible scholars call the seven graces, the seven Christian graces he's about to list, and we're going to go through all of them. 
So from verse 1 into 2, Therefore I, uh, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Verse 2, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Again, this is one of those verses that it just reads so much clearer to me in the King James Version. With all lowliness. Let's break that down first. It's the first one listed, okay? Lowliness of humility is what he's talking about here. You know, the thing about humility, right? The thing about humility is that when you know you have it, that's the moment that you've lost it, right? <laughs> right? My, we, we uh, as kids, when we were kids, I had a bunch of cousins that I grew up with. Uh, that's why, you know, in South Dakota, and I, my family is so far from my, all of my relatives, that's why I love the kids in this. We have so many kids in this church. It's like my, my kids, they get to have those cousin relationships anyway, just with their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, right? And we used to, we used to make fun of my, one of my cousins, who will remain nameless at this point. But anytime he did something that was, he thought was cool or he told a joke that he thought was funny, he'd stick his tongue in his cheek like, he was so proud, right? I can't help but think of it every time. At the moment you think, oh, I'm so humble, You've lost it. No, you're missing the point, right? So, if all lowliness of humility, did you know that, interestingly, in the Greek culture, humility was thought of as a vice? Not a good thing, actually. Thought of as a vice. And it was humility, they thought, was something that should just be practiced by slaves. That's interesting. But Paul makes the point here. Paul states that saints should be completely humble in their daily walk. And that is something we need to strive for. Lowliness is the opposite of pride. The opposite of pride. Uh, pride of uh, race, right? We see a lot of that today. Pride of uh, a face, right? And pride of grace, we see it, pride comes in all forms, and whenever it comes, it divides, no matter what. On the other hand, Christians should not, we shouldn't be promoting false humility either. We want to be humble, but not, we, it needs to be genuine humility, right? Genuine. Uh, unlike through Scripture, we see many, many different characters pop up. Pharisees, they pretend to be so pious and so humble, and they're arrogant and full of pride, Right? So, uh, lowliness, the virtue, I think I have this on the graphic, first, first one, first of the seven, lowliness, this virtue is listed first because of Paul's emphasis on unity, pride promotes disunity, humility promotes unity, you get it? So, let's cut the pride out, right? It's, it's thinking of, it's thinking of, basically, it's thinking of yourself third, Right? As a Christian, who should be first in your life? Anybody? God, right? Who should be second? Others. Well, you guys are smart. That's, I'm coming in third place here already. I'm probably, gonna, I'm probably even further down the list after that. So. Two, second thing, with all lowliness and what else? Meekness. This is my favorite one. I love this. Meekness is mentioned eight different times in the New Testament. Hear me here, all right? Meekness is not, is not weakness. Don't be confused on this. It is power under control 
with nothing to prove to anybody else. Moses was meek. We read that in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Yet he also got very angry in Exodus chapter 32, right? Jesus was very meek. He's referred to as meek in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Yet he got very angry when he turned the tables over in the temple, didn't he? So meekness is, it's not weakness. Meekness is this. It's simply bowing yourself to the will of God. Bowing what you want, what your flesh wants, what your pride wants, bowing yourself back to the will of God. The Greek word uh, for meekness is preotis, preotis. I'm trying to sound like the guy on the translator app. I was listening to it over and over so I could get it right. And I'm blowing it, preotis, right? I bring the Greek up here because it's used for a soothing medicine, but it's also a word that is used for a cult that had been broken. That sounds like some of us, right? Some of us... Some of y'all need to be the cult that's broken, right? No, nobody here. Certainly, certainly I have been in my life. Or a soft wind. But meekness, not weakness, it is bowing ourselves to the will of God against even our fleshly nature. So with all lowliness, with all meekness, with all long-suffering is third, long-suffering 12 times in the New Testament. This means long-tempered. We need to be long-tempered with each other in the church, long-tempered. This is the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back, long-suffering in whatever it is, in circumstances or in relationships, sometimes especially in relationships, long-suffering forbearing one another in love. Forbearance. Again, this is one of the, those King James words that I just, I think the other translations don't do it justice because forbearance is lovingly putting up, lovingly putting up with all that is disagreeable in other people, okay? Lovingly putting, don't you know, I don't care, you can't tell me otherwise, I know you're, you're a sanctified believer and everything else, but you can't tell me that some personalities, even in people that you love, some personalities just rub you the wrong way. Anybody? Yeah. Amen? You love them. You know you're supposed to. You know you have to. You pick your friends, but not your family. And now we're all family in the kingdom of God, right? Some personalities just rub you the wrong way. That's where this comes in really handy, forbearance lovingly putting up with all that's disagreeable in other people. It is actually listed as a fruit of the Spirit in another place by Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, okay? So, with all long-suffering, forbearing with one another in love, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's your last three. Endeavoring, endeavoring, unity of the Spirit and in peace. I took unity of the Spirit first for some reason. It must have been late. All right. <laughs> unity in the Spirit. You know, in John chapter 17, verse 21, uh, Jesus prayed that the church would be as one as he and the Father are one. 
That's his desire for this body, for everybody, as a matter of fact. Everybody, as a matter of fact, right? Think of, do this for me, okay? Have anybody ever been to um, like a play where they have an orchestra in the pit? Or been to the symphony, anybody? Remember, before they start playing and before the curtain drops or opens or whatnot, they tune, right? When you, I love that sound. It's, I don't know what's wrong with me. But you come in and you, everybody's playing something different and they're tuning and they're you know, running apart real quick. But everybody, and it just sounds like chaos, right? It does. So you got to think about it. Unity in the spirit, think of, it's basically like everybody's tuning in the orchestra pit versus the harmony under the leadership of the conductor. And the Holy Spirit is the conductor, and he brings us all into unity so we're not all doing our own thing, making a big racket, right? That's, un- that's what unity in the Holy Spirit is. I also love, um, brings to mind, you know, when we, uh, Paul tells us that when we agree on anything, when we agree in the Spirit, Two or more are gathered and we agree. I can't think of where that verse is. I need my reference manual, the Bible. Uh, where two or three agree, that word in the Greek is symphony, where we get our word for symphony. So when we agree in the spirit and prayer, it's like a heavenly symphony playing. That's unity in the spirit. We need to endeavor for that unity. Oh, that's why I swapped it, Okay. We need to endeavor for that unity. In other words, what's endeavoring? Do we see this on our graphic, 5 through 7? Being eager to maintain. Eager to maintain, eager to guard, like a happy marriage, right? A happy marriage, does anybody know that you have to keep working at it? You have to keep working at it, that we're endeavoring to have unity in every, every marriage has different points. And endeavoring to keep unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the seventh grace that they talk about. Peace. What is peace? It's shalom in the Hebrew. It means completeness. It means wholeness. It means being at rest. The reason for war on the outside is war on the inside. You understand? So the thing about unity in the church today that we've got to make very clear and we've got to vocalize and take a stand up against is many today attempt to unite Christians uh, in a way that is not biblical. And we have to, have to not just sweep it under the rug, pretend it's not happening and pretend it's okay. I want unity as much as the next guy, as much as the next pastor, as as much as the next Christian. I want unity among all the churches, all the denominations. Can't we just come together in the one truth that unites all, right? Well, many people, they try to unite Christians in a way that's not biblical. And what I mean is Paul doesn't deal with unity until he has laid an adequate doctrinal foundation. He establishes what we just talked about earlier, the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of Christ died for all, rose from the grave on the third day. Because he lives, you now live in him. That has to be the foundation of any church. Because the ecclesia 
is the word, Greek word for church. It just means we are called out into public to gather in his name. We who believe in him and therefore are signed and sealed by the Holy Spirit, by faith, we gather. But if we're believing in different things and different methods, if, I'm, if, I, if I am a pastor who's standing up here saying, all right, believe in faith and now you're saved, okay? But now I'm gonna need you to go do these works to stay saved, if I'm that pastor, that's a different gospel. That is a different doctrine that I'm teaching, okay? How can another pastor who teaches faith plus nothing equals salvation come alongside me and be in unity with me if I'm teaching a different gospel? It's impossible. But there is those out there that want to unite Christians by ignoring doctrinal differences. Christians are not to agree to false doctrine for the sake of unity. There it is. Amen? Romans chapter 16, verse 17 through 20 makes that clear. 2 John, verse 6 through 11 makes that clear. It can't happen. On the other side of things, we look at the church of Ephesus, which is referenced as one of the seven churches in Revelation, and we realize even though they had great doctrine, they also ended up having problems as well. So just because your doctrine uh, is pure, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily spiritually pure as well. So you can't take anything for granted, okay? It is imperative. It is imperative, though, that believers be a part of a local fellowship. So I'm glad you're here this morning, okay? And this is what Paul's talking about. What's so important about having unity here is because this is where, this is where you can exercise your gifts to help others grow, all right? And that's one, an underlying theme, as we mentioned already, that Paul's driving at here. Uh, I always love uh, Dr. Chuck Missler. He would always say this. You know, he's, one of his favorite sayings would be to say, you know, what de- denomination are you? If people ask me what denomination I am, he would, would simply say, well, I belong to the same denomination that David did. And you know, the person says, well, what's that? Well, David said in Psalm 119, verse 63, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and keep thy precepts. Right? And that's real. So all of this separation, I know there are different denominations for different reasons. And unity can come if the doctrine is pure and, and the differences are gray area that Paul said, don't argue about this stuff, right? We can come together with other churches. I'm not saying that, don't get me wrong. But the doctrine has to be pure. It can't be a different gospel. And Paul makes that very clear as we go. So endeavoring, of, endeavoring to keep unity in the spirit and the bond of peace into verse four, there is, and he's making this point for me. I should have just read it. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One body refers to the total number of believers from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. That's a lot, Right? This one body is also referred to sometimes as the invisible church, but it is not wholly accurate because all true believers should be visible, right? We should be visible in our communities. So one body, one spirit, one spirit refers to the Holy Spirit that baptizes each believer into the body of Christ. And we covered this in Ephesians chapter 1, that when you believe, when you put your faith and trust in the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb, that he is alive, you put your faith into that, the Holy Spirit seals your heart, guaranteeing your inheritance. 
Now, from that point forward, he'll put new desires in your heart and he'll prepare good works for you to step into. So you'll desire to do good work. Good works will follow, but not as a part of the uh, purchase price. Your works are a result of your transformation, not a means to the transformation. The work of the Holy Spirit is to unify believers in Christ. This is the unity that the believer is instructed to keep. So one spirit, one hope. And what is our hope? Ron, what's our hope? What is our blessed hope? Come on. Harpazzo. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Our one hope, the return of our Lord to take us to heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. This is the blessed hope that Titus, Paul spoke about to Titus. A focus on his impending return, a focus on his impending return galvanizes us into proper spiritual priorities and emphasis. If you think Jesus is coming back this afternoon, it kind of gets, it's getting real, right? Well, I only got a few hours left. I only got a few hours left. Let's get together and do something for the Lord. Let's go save some people. Let's go tell people about Jesus at the park. Should we? We got to tell as many people as possible because he's coming at four, right? If you knew, if you knew the blessed hope was here, right? Some of y'all might even make a sign and just stand on the road, right? (laughs) Crazy people. I tell you what. <laughs> oh my. One body, one spirit, one hope. Verse 5 one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Mm. One Lord. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach. His lordship over believers brings into existence the unity of the church. Two believers, two people claiming Jesus Christ, they should be in unity. They should be in unity on that one thing, if nothing else. You know, someone asked Gandhi, you guys know who Gandhi is? Yeah. Spiritual leader uh, of India, right? Uh, Somebody asked him, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? You know what his response was? Christians. Yeah. One faith refers to the body of, of truth called the apostles' doctrine. The early Christians recognized a body of basic, basic doctrine, basic doctrine that they taught, that they guarded, and they committed to others. My yoke is easy. The Lord's yoke is easy. His burden is light, right? The gospel is simple. So simple, as a matter of fact, that a child can understand it. It's beautiful. It's, if, if, if the doctrine that somebody's throwing on your back is too heavy for you to carry and you want to give up, there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Augustine said this, uh, there, there must be substance to form adhesion of believers 
And this substance is correct doctrine. Augustine, to that point, said this. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, though, agape. Right? In essentials, unity. And what are the essentials? Good doctrine. Okay? Non-essential, it's not doctrine. We can have a conversation about it. You know, when do you think we're getting raptured or whatnot? You know, I say pre-trib, I'm all that. We can have a conversation about that and still be in unity, you understand? Okay? Amen? One baptism. One baptism. This, uh, this is a reference here, Paul's referencing back to Ephesians chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of the believer that the, seals the heart when they put their faith in Jesus, right? The, that's the, that is the real baptism. We need to understand that. What we're going to do on Saturday, next Saturday, for our baptism service, that is a ritual baptism, okay? It is something we do it, which is representative of what has already happened in the person's heart when they, had, when they believed, okay? Need to understand that. Water baptism is a symbol of the real baptism of the Holy Spirit by which believers are actually made into believers, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For by one Spirit, by one Spirit, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond, slave, or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Chapter 4, verse 6. Let's keep reading. So we had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and, verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all in you now. That's kind of a mind-blowing statement, isn't it? For carnal man who comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who was once lost afar off from God, Paul has said, now put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and now God is within that same person. He is now within you. Makes me think of that song from when we were kids, right? I've got joy, 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 joy down in. Where? Down there. Yeah? This little light of mine. I'm just going to keep going. I tell you what, you know, one of the things I love most about Life Story Church and what you guys have done, because trust me, it's what you guys have done, all of us together as a body, like what Paul's talking about, is our child care. I mean, it's just like the childcare I grew up with, you know, coloring sheets, singing songs. I remember I'd, those two songs I just m- mentioned, I learned those when I was three. And you know what? That got deep down in my heart. Where? <laughs> oh, man, God is good. One God and Father of all refers to God's fatherhood of believers. We are reborn, reborn into his family, his family. We say the house of God, right? Because in the Hebrew, house means family. So you're in the house of God this morning. And uh, John's probably like, what? no, it's, my, it's the Rutledge, right? This is my event space, right? No, wherever we are, we are the house of God. 
It's the family. Family. We're reborn into his family. Uh, Paul likes to emphasize the Father. He's been doing it all, all this letter. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, what does that open with, right? Our Father, not my Father who art in heaven, no. Our Father, unity. And there's only one Father. And this might be hard for some to hear. Uh, it might be hard for some emergent church folks to hear, but he's not the Father of unbelievers. He's not the Father. Sonship can come only through Christ Jesus. We're reborn, reborn through baptism by faith. Verse 7, let's keep reading. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, this is cool. Now, Paul moves from what we have in common to how we differ now to how we differ from one another. In the natural realm, we have uh, abilities, right? Uh, Although we are in this respect not all created equal, in the spiritual realm, each believer has at least one spiritual gift, which makes them just as important as any other part. I mean, I love to get up here and teach dig into the Word, and do what I'm doing right now. But this wouldn't happen without all of y'all. You understand? Every single person here that's bringing their gifts to the table, it doesn't ha- this, what's happening here, the church doesn't function without everyone bringing their gifts, okay? Uh, that's just the way it is. There are three primary, uh, on this note, I know people, often, when we talk about spiritual gifts, I love to do a series on um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. I call it gifted. It's all about spiritual gifts. But for those of you who are curious about where we find these lists of spiritual gifts, we, we see them in three primary places. Can we see that list? So if you want to do a study on that, which we're not doing this morning, you can look up these verses 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, which is, we're getting there. Each list is different. Each list is different uh, and probably probably only representative. It's, it's not an end-all list. There's more gifts than are even listed, probably. Uh, however, spiritual gifts are not toys to play with. Keep that in mind. They are tools to build with. That's why, that's why you have them, is to build up your brothers and sister in the church. That's why it's so important that you have a church family and body, because you can't, you can't be all that you were created to be if you don't have an ecclesia, a church fellowship to share those giftings with. You help others grow with those gifts, and others help you grow with their gifts. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? And we are, in, we are to inspect fruits of the Spirit rather than gifts of the Spirit as well. I should mention that before I move on. But let's move on. Verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. This is one of the coolest lines. I love this. Uh, and he gave gifts unto men, led captivity captive. Captive. This is actually a remarkable quote from Psalm 68, 18, and it's applying to Jesus a victory song that was written by King David. Too cool. 
It's a, the same Hebraism is found also in Judges chapter 5, verse 12, where they said essentially what this means, I'll give it to you, is to lead captive him who once held you captive. So that's what we were once slaves to sin and Satan's trickery that brought us into sin. Now, sin is our prisoner, right? Because he has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and he's put sin beneath his feet. Too cool. Lead captive him who held you captive. Verse 9. Now that he ascended, and get gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? This is kind of cool. To open, in other words, to open the prison to them who are bound, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 61, as Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3, to open the prison to them who are bound. What Paul is saying here is that he has got the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He's got the keys to the kingdom, and he's released the captives that were in the earth. This is a really cool study. I'm just going to throw a nugget out at you, and then I'm going to move on. But can I see this next graphic? If you ever want to do a study on Hades, hell, it's a real place. The emergent church today wants to tell you that it's not real, because that'd be mean of God, right? No, no, no. Keep in mind, God's plan for mankind was never to send them to hell. His plan for them was paradise in the Garden of Eden. Understand? Now, once we broke covenant, as man broke covenant with God, Jesus made a way for us to be in covenant, again, a new covenant with God through faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. But if you don't choose the new covenant and you stay afar off from God and you're not reborn into being a child of God, then by default, there are places that you go. And it's not God sending you there. It's essentially sending yourself there. But these are different underworlds, the bottomless pit, the abuso, Abraham's bosom. We remember the story of Abraham and uh, the, the man who had died, Lazarus, and he was in a place of torment, and he said, oh, just for a drop of water. He saw Abraham. He was in Ab this place of uh, Abraham's bosom, a place of holding until the resurrection of the dead and everything else. It's a really cool study, but this is essentially that graphic right there is what Paul is talking about because when Jesus paid it all, the word tells us that the first thing he did is he went down to Abraham's bosom and shared the gospel with everybody and unlocked it. And so that's gone now. Jailbreak. Jailbreak. <laughs> Woo, that's it. I love it. Cool. So let's keep reading. Verse 10. He descended, that he that descended, broke everyone out, is the same also that ascended up far above the heavenlies, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So he's, he's listing some offices of the church here. Let's see, can I see this next graphic? We're going to have to move quickly through this, okay? 
Five classes of gifted roles. Apostles. What's an apostle? One sent with a commission. A disciple is a follower or learner. An apostle is a divinely appointed representative. Strictly, they were to have been personal witnesses to the resurrection, according to Acts chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These are the men, the apostles, that laid the foundation. Once laid, they were no longer needed. In a broad sense, all Christians today have an apostolic ministry, essentially. Aren't we all just building on Paul's foundation of Ephesians right now? Yeah. Prophets, who are prophets? Well, look, guys, this is not necessarily fortune-telling here, predicting the future. That's not necessarily all prophecy is, okay? Uh, it's simply someone who's a foreteller of the Word of God with purpose. The purpose is edification, encouragement, and even consolation we find in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, see the references. Evangelists, who are the evangelists? Bearers of good news. Evangeline, my daughter. Ah, evangelist is the root of her name. We tell her all the time, bringer of the good news. To win the lost is the purpose. To win the lost is the purpose. So uh, these are uh, spiritual obstetricians, in other words. Spiritually, they're in the birthing business, okay? Birthing believers, that's what they do with their gifting. And then there's pastors, shepherds. Shepherds feed and lead. These are the pediatricians. That's all I am, really, right? They feed and lead. And five teachers. Teachers, uh, since the word some is not repeated, suggests that we have one office, pastors and teachers, uh, with two different ministries in the same gift and I'd vouch for that. Verse 12. Verse 12. Why these offices? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why all of these different offices, okay? The pastor is not called to do the work for you. We have to do this all together, okay? Pastor is called to equip the saints unto the work of the ministry that we're all doing together unto the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, Chuck Missler, Dr. Chuck, my teacher, said this. He said, the greatest tragedy of our churches is biblical illiteracy in the pews. I concur. But not at life story, Amen. I mean, think about this. Would you get into an airplane if the pilot didn't know more about flying than the average church member knows about the Bible? No way. <laughs> not a chance. But not here, of course, right? So, uh, I love it. The good news is that when, when sheep are well-fed, they multiply, right? Verse 13, I've got three more verses and we're going to be done today, okay? Three more verses. I'm pushing it, I know. Do I have three more verses, guys? The Sunday school teachers probably think differently, but... <laughs> Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. That word perfect there, by the way, means mature. So ladies, if you're looking for the perfect man, you need to be looking for maturity, all right? 
which isn't necessarily me when I'm watching a Broncos game, but still, right? (laughs) Unto a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the, that's an interesting phrase there, the, the measure of stature. Well, they start, these measures start in verse 13, 14, and 15, and 16. The measures of maturity, in other words. Here's the measure of stature. We have that graphic, Christ-likeness, stability, truth joined with love and cooperation. That's the best dating advice I've ever given right there. That's what you're looking for. Verse 14 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Too often, church, we are willing participants. Too willing. We're too willing to gobble up what we want to hear from anyone who, who will tell it to us, okay? We can't be, okay? We, we no more toss to and fro, okay? Um, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth, or it could be said manifesting the truth in love. This is my jam right here. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, and do, even, do people even still say, this is my jam anymore? I don't know. I, th- I love this. Speaking the truth in love. I say it all the time. You cannot separate, you cannot separate truth from love and it still remain love. I know that's a hard pill to swallow for the emergent church, the majority church today to swallow, but the just love, man. <sighs> I'm just telling you guys, yeah, we want to love everybody, okay? But the crowd that says, come as you are and stay as you are, that crowd, guys, you cannot separate truth from love and it still be truth. And I say that out of love. Dr. Chuck says, truth without love is brutality. And that love without truth is hypocrisy. But I like to say that love without truth is not love, you're just being polite. So, one more graphic. Truth unites, lies divide. Love unites, selfishness divides. If you're unwilling to share the truth, hear this now, you're being selfish. Proverbs 27, verse 6 reads, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Hmm. Last verse, verse 16, and we'll close. I'll invite Leith forward. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Okay, okay, we can take this one in the New King James Version. Let's... Let's do that. Can we see this one? And then the New King James Version, verse 16, from the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body 
for the edifying of itself in love. Every believer, every believer, no matter how insignificant they may feel or even appear, has a ministry to other believers, every single one of you. An isolated Christian cannot minister to others, and neither can others minister to them. And note the emphasis on love, lastly. As the body of Christ, thinking medically, right? The body of Christ, everyone being a different part, body part, there is one thing that is the circulatory system that goes through us all, and that is love. So, with every eye closed and every head bowed this morning, if you're here this morning, and the Lord is bringing conviction to you or communicating something to you, I don't know what it is. If maybe he's communicating his love to you, in a purest sense that he never has before. I don't know what it is. But if you want to go before your Lord and Savior this morning and you want to put your faith and your trust in him, if you want to bring something to him, if you want to release something to him, if you want to rest in him this morning, if you want to start fresh, new again this morning, just raise your hand. No one's looking around. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. If you're here this morning and you want to say a prayer of recommittal to the Lord or maybe give your heart to him for the first time and put your trust in him for salvation, for eternity for the first time, for the first time in a long time or the first time, raise your hand, put it down. We want to pray with you. Thank you. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its faithfulness, Lord God. Lord, see the hearts of your people as they come before you, Lord. We can't navigate this life without you, Lord. We need you as much as we need our next breath. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for each other, God. Or we come before you, Lord, and we realize some of us have not been in unity. Some of us have not been bringing our gifts to the body. Lord, thank you for bringing that to our attention, Lord, and help enable us to do so, to plug in, to give, and to serve each other, to engage in that ministry that you've created us for. Help us discover the gifts that you've given each one of us, Lord, and help bring us into full unity as we know it's your heart's desire to do so, Lord. Now, those of you who are saying a prayer of recommittal, like I said, for the first time or the first time in a long time, let's say this prayer together as a body, church. Let's say it out loud. Just repeat after me. And if you're saying this prayer, I ask that you come talk to me or send me a message after service. Let's pray. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. Come into my heart. Make me new. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the grave on the third day. I trust you. Walk with me all the days of my life, and I will with you 
In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, pour his grace out on you, go before you, walk beside you, follow after you, prosper you in all you do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. We love you guys. Thank you.